Welcome to the MedTech Talk Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and it is my pleasure to welcome Adam Berman, CEO of Alleviant Medical, to this month's episode. Adam's career has taken him from engineer to sales rep to CEO, where he's not shied away from some of the toughest clinical challenges in medicine. Today, we'll discuss his experiences at TBA Medical, a company he led in the AV fistula space, his most recent venture, Alleviant Medical, which is tackling one of the biggest issues in heart failure, and much, much more. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Great to, uh, great to be here. Yeah, no, it's uh, terrific to have you. You and I have known each other for a while now and, um, and uh, really enjoyed uh, uh, getting to know you. And, uh, and you've had you know, really interesting experiences in our field. And before we dive into that, um, uh, you know, one of the thing is, things I think is really cool about you, what you've done is you've really experienced everything from you know, every different functional angle in our field, I think. Um, and I want to really dive into some of the different companies and your experiences. But before we do that, it would be great to hear a little bit about your, your background. Were you always interested in medicine and engineering? What, what was the young Adam Ber- Berman doing? Was he tinkering with different medical devices at a young age? You know, I, it's it's funny because I, I definitely am not an engineer that knows how to design anything and never sort of built anything when I was younger, but I was always intrigued by medicine and sort of the analytical side of engineering. And so I had visions of maybe becoming a doctor, maybe going to medical school, you know, math and physics kind of resonated with me. So I sort of did well in those subjects in school. And so just wasn't quite sure what to do with that. And uh, found the specialty of biomedical engineering where you could kind of blend both. So decided to, to study that in school and, uh, you know, really ended up enjoying it and then sort of parlayed that into sort of the other aspects of the business in um, a, a program out in Seattle uh, for, for a, a master's degree. I had the chance to work with a biomedical engineer named Karen Kunzelman and, and a surgeon named Pat Cochran, where as a student, you could sort of go into the operating room and learn about various surgical procedures and then sort of collaborate and think about from an engineering problem-solving standpoint, ways to improve various procedures, ways to integrate engineering sort of analytics into surgical procedures. And so it was a, you know, it was a really cool introduction to that world after, uh, after uh, undergraduate. And, uh, you know, that's sort of where I would say I learned the most about the the existence of the med tech business or the medical device development business and sort of all the different facets that are involved in it. And I sort of kind of filled in a bunch of those blanks along the way, uh, you know, continuing to learn sort of every day, all these various pieces that have to come together to kind of create a medical device company or, you know, a, a new medical device therapy. So, so got pretty hooked into the medical device thing early early on, uh, very much from kind of the medical angle and then just sort of the sort of the analytical side of engineering, I guess, is the way that I'd summarize it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I mean, having that early experience in the OR, I mean, I think it's one of the one of the things that's really changed right in our business is how difficult it is to get in the OR. But but it, it sounds like your ability to get in there and actually see what they were doing at a young age must have had a huge impact. It was so interesting and it was so, I mean, the respect that I gained for the clinicians and what they do in the hospital setting, just seeing the, you know, number one, the, the hours they put in the care, 
that they put in to take care of their patients. And then just the, just how much is on the line every day when they go in, they do a big operation or they do an important procedure. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty humbling watching what, what was really on the clinician's plate. And, you know, for me, probably, you know, when I look back now, I go, wow, this is a really interesting angle to be able to partner with clinicians and create new therapies, create new devices and, um, you know, be involved in that process, but, you know, just have the utmost respect for the actual clinicians doing the work. Cause it is, it just gets intense. Um, yeah. and they, they put a lot on the line and it's, 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 a, it's a tough job. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And then you, you, I hadn't realized this about you, but you went to computer motion and really, you know, tackling one of the, probably the biggest challenges at the time, closed chest heart surgery. So t- talk about that. That was a really interesting period. So this was, uh, let's see, this was the late nineties and uh, closed chest coronary bypass surgery was sort of the goal with robotics and just a really talented team over at computer motion had been doing some work uh, in the animal lab setting and the preclinical setting with the vision of trying to do a closed chest beating heart coronary bypass. You fast forward to today and over the, you know, the past few decades, you know, there's been just a group of clinicians working very hard to make that a reality. Of course, the uh, introduction of the drug eluting stent sort of changed the tra- trajectory of that a little bit, but you see the robot being used in so many different therapeutic areas now. Um, and so that experience was the first time I got a chance to kind of uh, travel to different international clinical sites, um, meet clinicians interested in using robotics to try to create less invasive approaches. It started off with uh, cardiovascular applications and then kind of evolved into some other more general surgery uh, applications. So it was really, uh, you know, that was kind of my first exposure to the medical device business side of things. And the first time I thought, now, okay, what does this person do over here in the operating room? Oh, that's a, that's a salesperson over there selling a heart valve. Okay, what is, you know, what is, what is this group over here internally at the home office do? They're uh, a regulatory affairs group interacting with FDA around this clinical trial we're getting going. And so it was my first introduction to the pieces of the puzzle. Um, and it was just really a, a fun experience and very cutting edge and uh, dynamic and, you know, had a chance to really meet some, some great people during that experience. What were the what were some of the biggest challenges that computer fa- motion faced at the time? What was one of the most interesting ones was it, it ended up actually being an anatomy limitation on the particular clinical application. Closed chest cabbage, you know, there's only so much room in the chest to kind of work. And so um, a lot of smart people were working on various tools and stabilizers and space creating devices to facilitate access to the various parts of the heart. And so from that clinical application, there were certain anatomy uh, limitations. There were also device limitations though. This was as anastomotic devices were being created. And uh, that's how I was introduced to my next uh, sort of job and and position and opportunity on the sales side of things was with a a company called Coalescent Surgical, which had an anastomotic technology, worked really well with the robot and they were starting to commercialize for off-pump surgery and also for vascular surgery, uh, these anastomotic clips, and then one-shot devices to join blood vessels together onto the beating heart, but then also sort of in the peripheral vasculature. And so, um, you know, that was an interesting shift because I consciously wanted to 
learn more about the sales side of things. Um, I was really intrigued by, you know, spending time in the operating room with clinicians and, and seeing these other people that were driving sort of the adoption of new technologies and partnering with the clinicians on some pretty complex procedures. And they were highly clinically knowledgeable and, you know, right there in the room with, with the doctors. And I thought, wow, I, that looks really fun. I wonder if I could do that. And uh, tried to parlay that into, let's see, I think I, I got an interview or two for a sales position, a sales manager position. And um, they said, did you have any sales experience? I said, no, but I, I think I could do it. And they, you know, they passed <laughs> and uh, <laughs> kept working as a clinical engineer and uh, eventually was given the opportunity as a sales uh, manager by uh, someone that was ended up being a, a really you know, key mentor for me early on, a gentleman named Mark Flores who was a very gifted, uh, you know, intelligent, motivating human being. He, he gave me a job as a sales manager and stuck me in a new geography there in the Southeast United States, which I, I think I had like never been to the state of Texas or to the state of Georgia. And they just sort of put me in a territory and said, all right, go sell some product, uh, find some hospitals. And that was kind of my introduction into kind of the, the commercial side of things. Yeah. And what, and I mean, that must've been a huge shift going from an engineer to selling something. I mean, what was it, how, what was it like? How good at, who, how good at were you? I was terrible at the beginning. Um, <laughs> eventually I kind of found my stride, but I just remember it was probably the most uncomfortable thing I had ever done in my entire life. I mean, it was very uncomfortable, but it, it became more and more fun and interesting as I started to kind of figure it out. I, I actually thought that it was purely going to be kind of a technical sell. And that just because something is clinically better, the data is being generated. Well, therefore, we'll just kind of get adoption. And it'll be great. Just got to kind of show up, talk to the clinician about the benefits, and then everything would be, you know, sort of a linear progression. And I realized that, okay, no way. That's not the case. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, there is a human element um, across, you know, just like everything across the hospital setting. You know, you have the surgeon. In this case, we were calling on the surgeon. You have the, the, the nursing staff, you have purchasing, you have the hospital administration. And so what I kind of figured out over the course of time, you know, learning and watching and, and talking and, and, you know, it's kind of observing in the OR, it's that there were, you know, there, there's the, the operational component of the hospital, but the human element of that sales process is what I kind of learned more about um, while doing and sort of while showing up and getting rejected. And people say, nope, you know, don't, don't need those anastomotic devices right now. Thanks, though. And, you know, just kind of accepting no for an answer a lot. And then, you know, trying to sort of thread that needle to find the right clinicians that shared the vision for integrating a new technology into their practice and uh, also that that were willing to to purchase the product too so it was a huge learning experience very uncomfortable overall <laughs> are there some some things that you know came out of that that persist today as you look at your different um, what did you learn that kind of persists with you today well, there's a couple things I think uh, I definitely appreciate the work that goes on in the field. And I put like the, you know, the tip of the spear for all of these companies we work on, even in the earliest stage company, that's kind of, you know, maybe still a few years away from revenue or from commercialization. 
integrating that commercial input. You know, we have on our team today some very experienced commercialization and clinical research expertise, people that have really driven clinical trial enrollment, but also come from a commercial background. And I think keeping the customer, the call point, sort of the realities of the field first and foremost, and then trying to do better to integrate those lessons early in the design process. You know, you can kind of make one of the coolest devices ever and, you know, it works really well, but, you know, there's just some using user features that won't be practical in a cath lab setting, uh, you know, whether it's French size or just imaging modalities. And so just trying to really put kind of the commercial perspective uh, front and center throughout the whole process, whether it's, you know, the first design concept or, uh, you know, when you're designing even a clinical trial, just just trying to think about the, the commercialization, commercialization aspect, because those people mm-hmm. work very hard um, on the front lines there. And so just, you know, try to keep that front and center in the whole decision making process. Yeah, I mean, that must have been so helpful coming from an engineering background to to have that view on, on you know, how do things get paid for? How, what's the process at the hospital? Uh, I can see that would have been invaluable. It was definitely informative. You know, I, I replay conversations from that period of time in my life, you know, in my head today. I just think um, and, and it's, it's of course, it's evolved quite a bit uh, the past couple of decades. Um sort of the, you know, purchasing has become even more stringent and uh, has continued to evolve. But, you know, I do think the role of the sales professional and the the field representative is still a critical part of the equation. It's evolving, um, but it's it's certainly a critical part of the equation. And you see that in successful uh, companies that are doing well commercially today that, you know, they just have this sort of DNA that you can just you you know, you can see, you can feel they're they're very clinically savvy. They're very engaging with the customer. They're not just pitching a product. It's a true kind of clinical collaboration. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that maniacal focus on the customer. And in our business, you're right. It's a, There are many different customers, right? There's the surgeon, the, the hospital. But having that maniacal focus on it, I think, is a, is part of the DNA of these really successful companies. And in, in the experience at Coalescent, you, you, you saw uh, the problems in AV fistula, right? That's right. So, you know, one of the procedures that we ended up using our, our device was called a surgical AV fistula. And I, I had no idea what that was. I had never heard of it uh, prior to walking into an operating room and seeing a patient have uh, a dialysis access, a surgical AV fistula placed in their arm. And I saw how difficult this procedure was for the patients and clinicians started using our device for AV fistula. So I had a chance to watch, you know, probably hundreds of those procedures and I mean, they're, they're pretty tough on the patient. They're pretty tough on the surgeon. They're tough on the dialysis clinic because these, these uh, procedures fail more often than they, than they work the first time. So it's just something additional for this patient to go through. And uh, uh, Bill Hoffman, who's currently the CEO over at Inari, had introduced me to a, a surgeon named Dr. Billy Cohn, who... Um, had invented uh, a concept for creating an AV fistula without open surgery, delivering a system percutaneously. And he had created some, some prototypes. And, you know, I had uh, heard of Dr. Cohn over the years, sort of through the robotics uh, research and development phases. And, uh, you know, I flew down to Houston um, to see some of his work in the animal lab and was just blown away by, first of all, his intelligence and thoughtfulness and just the 
sort of the radical nature of the, the approach he was proposing and just felt that commercially, if we actually could do that product, you know, successfully develop that product and bring it to patients, that it would absolutely be beneficial to a lot of human beings and have an, you know, a major impact in the space. If we could go from open surgery in one of the, the highest volume vascular surgery procedures to minimally invasive, that that would be a very strong clinical success and commercial success. And so that that's what that's how we sort of shifted into um, the, the company. Ended up being, we called the company TVA Medical. And that was my first CEO gig. Uh, uh, Billy Cohn and Sante Ventures gave me the chance as a first time CEO there. And we started that 2008 and uh, got our first financing, I guess it was 2010. And, you know, just started on this really, you know, pretty, uh, gosh, it was such an experience in terms of the development process and progress that we sort of went through developing that product and then taking it into the clinic, ultimately getting reimbursement, regulatory approvals, and, um, you know, some really strong clinical data uh, through acquisition with that company. Yeah, uh, amazing journey. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences with Billy Cohn. I, I mean, for, for those that, have, that haven't met him, I mean, he is he is quite a character from uh, being an incredible physician, inventor, magician, musician. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about what, what was it like to work with someone who just is so creative? Well, we had a system figured out early in the uh, product development, uh, you know, uh, process, uh, for lack of a better term. And so our team and we had uh, the, our, our core engineering team, you know, Dana Mester, Damian Jellick, Jesse Rios, Tom Pate. We, we would go to Houston. We would uh, do some uh, anatomy research in the lab, look at various blood vessels in the arm with Billy and look at, you know, sort of where we could do this procedure anatomically to, to have it actually work and result in a successful dialysis access for a patient. Do a bunch of hard work during the, during the day. And then he would go play a, you know, a gig either in a 70s band or uh, he had this great blues band he played with in Houston. So we'd all go, you know, watch one of his concerts at night hang, you know, pl playing bass or trombone or something and just have a great download from the, 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 the hard day of, of R and D. And then, uh, we, you know, swing by the medical center at midnight to check on one of his calves that was, you know, he had another project working on an artificial heart and he'd have a calf walking on a treadmill at the medical center there in the research lab. So we'd swing by, check on the vitals of how the calf was doing with the artificial heart. You know, go crash for a few hours and then come back and, and you know, do some more R&D the next day and start it all over again. So that was sort of the, the, the fun early stages of trying to figure out the product and, and working hard in the animal lab. And um, yeah, just B Billy is a very unique human being, just so intelligent, very thoughtful inventor and uh, just, uh, you know, a very positive uh, presence in a development project and in a company. And everybody kind of feeds off that. I mean, anybody that's worked with him, he runs the Center for Device Innovation with Johnson & Johnson now over in, um, in Houston and has just a number of very interesting products and projects, I should say. But he's also very giving and helping other entrepreneurs develop their ideas. And, uh, you know, that's just a unique thing to find in a person. And so, and on top of it, he's a, a cardiothoracic surgeon and, uh, you know, no shortage of amazing magic tricks will be pulled out at a moment's notice. If you're traveling through the airport, all of a sudden, you know, running late for a plane or something, come on, Billy, we're heading overseas to do some clinical trial work. And it's like, wait a second, he's doing a card trick here for, 
some new friends we made in the airport and uh you know, ne- never a dull moment. We, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Yeah, that's awesome. And how do you how do you channel? I mean, someone with such energy, creativity. I mean, he's got wide ranging interests. So how hard was it to channel that into um, into a very what ultimately is a very focused project? You know, there's when I think about all the conversations over the years, and you know, there was one. Uh, one comment actually he made, I remember early on that was whatever we're working on now, as complicated as it looks, eventually at the end of this project, we're going to look back at it. It's going to look like a very simple design. Everyone's going to know how to use it. It'll be adopted. And we'll say, oh yeah, that was, that was a pretty, that was pretty straightforward. The, the end product was pretty straightforward. And uh, so I think, you know, his creativity and energy and, and, and uh, thought process, um, Although rapid fire and uh, you know voluminous with a lot of ideas and everything, he he really understands that at the end you got to make a product that is simple to deliver to the patient and to the clinicians, and that was a that's definitely a unique outlook. Um, a lot of the times in these in these companies, and it's it's really the management team's responsibility. It's something that we're all working on together, trying to get better and better at this at every company we do together. Is you know how do we uh, you know, first of all, you got to be targeting a big market, big clinical unmet need. But how do you really synthesize down some of these complicated inputs from various uh, sources? Whether you're designing a clinical trial or a product, there's a lot of inputs. Um, or designing a financing round. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of the management team and the CEO's responsibility to try to sift through that, listen carefully come up with a plan that's the best plan possible and then relentlessly execute on that plan until you you, know, you, <clears throat> you learn something new and then you got to make an adjustment. And so I think just constant distillation, uh, but don't be afraid to paint the bullseye and kind of go for it, whatever it is, whether it's a design or a clinical trial, a fundraising round, um, something else that you're focusing on in the business, you know, constructing a department. It's, it's, uh, Sift through the data, paint the bullseye, go for it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, you know, that early link to Bill Hoffman. I hadn't realized. I think Bill might have even introduced it to us way back when because we were looking at Bill's early comp- earlier company before Inari. Um, how did you how did you get to know Bill? I mean, he and and t- maybe what's been his influence over the years. You know, Bill uh, is is another one of those just unique human beings. Just so he understands the market and understands the human element of all the different components that go into these companies. And you know, anyone that's worked with him, I, I've actually never had the chance to work directly with him on anything. But it's everyone sort of, uh, you know, I think knows that he just he gets the people aspect, uh, gets the strategy, knows how to blend it, and. Uh, over the years, multiple conversations have, have been helpful. You know, I, I think about various mentors along the trajectory of the past couple of decades, and he's definitely one of the, those at the top where even just a few conversations can be grounding and uh, clarifying, you know, when things kind of get complicated. Uh, it's just a very sound mind in the business and has just been so successful uh, because of that. And um and maybe it's a good segue because he's a, you know, he's a big Texas guy. I was amazed when he moved out of Texas and he's still unfortunately roots for the Astros, but you've become, you know, quite 
um, quite uh, fixated in in Austin and in Texas. What what's that like as an ecosystem in building these companies? How, you talk about how that has changed over the years. Well, it's really interesting because you know when I carried a bag for a few years, uh, Texas ended up being one of the markets where. I was blown away by the number of uh, healthcare providers and just kind of from a commercial standpoint, you know, there's all this healthcare delivery and there's a lot of great places to work and a lot of great hospitals to go to. And, um, you know, then fast forward to when we put TVA medical here and now we have Alleviant Medical here in Austin, Texas. Um, it's a real Austin in particular has its own kind of vibe. It's a great town, you know, great live music, a lot of tech. Um, you know, growing number of sort of healthcare uh, centers, if you will, that, that are becoming more and more prominent. You know, the Dell Medical School exists here now, which is really kind of a, an incredible place. And then you've got not far away Houston with the Texas Medical Center. Um, you know, and our most recent company, Alleviant, spun out of the Texas Medical Center Biodesign Program, the TMC Biodesign Program. And, you know, you've got the largest medical center on planet Earth all clustered together there in Houston. Um, I mean, there's just no place like it any, you know, anywhere in the world. And so you have this concentration of clinical expertise that's unmatched, very close by. And then you have other sort of markets close by. Dallas and San Antonio are just massive healthcare delivery markets. Uh, and then there are a number of other cities, of course, here in, in Texas as well that, that, that also are great markets. But I would say for putting an operation, you know, so we we now have stood up two um, sort of R&D facilities here for TVA and now for Alivia in Austin. It's uh, it's a great place to draw talent to. You know, we've had a chance to recruit some people from Minnesota. And one of the funniest things, I mean, and this is no joke, like I, I would say several of our core you know, leaders here at Alivia and also at TVA, when they came down from Minnesota, I mean, they had, they were like, I'm, I'm getting cowboy boots for real. I'm wearing them. I'm, I'm putting cowboy boots on. I'm going to wear them to the office. I'm wearing them every day until I realize how impractical they are. And then, you know, then it again, then it gets a hundred degrees and I'm like, all right, I'm done with the cowboy boots for now, but I'm still all about Texas. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a culture in Austin and, and the Texas thing. It's playful. I mean, we, we, uh, we have a lot of fun here. It's a dynamic environment. Um, there's always something to do in Austin and there's no shortage of people sort of flying in for big, you know, F1 races. You've got the uh, Austin city limits, you've got South by Southwest. So great live music, uh, you know, great energy. And then you've got the university of Texas, of course, and you've got, uh, as I mentioned, the Dell medical school, you know, you've got government here as the state capital. And so it's a really, a really unique place. And, and we, uh, we like setting up companies and building them here in Austin because it's a great blend of a number of different energies that are, are very productive for, you know, building a company. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think success kind of feeds on itself. And as you get some of the, you know, the early companies, whether it was TBA or, LDR or, you know, others that, that were successful. I imagine it's one, you, you have that base of people that are looking for their next venture, but then two, you know, people are more and more willing to maybe pack up their bags and move to Austin or wherever. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, and there's been a few, you know, really interesting companies that have uh, developed in Austin and, and, 
and uh, expanding uh, venture capital pools locally. Uh, of course, you've got uh, Sante Ventures has been a big part of the growth here in Austin and MedTech and, and S3 Ventures has done mm-hmm. a, a lot of strong MedTech work in, in growing companies and has been a core partner to us here. And you've got a number of other new parties, Revival, Healthcare, of course, here in town. And so it's it's going to be really interesting to see the next decade, um, you know, how this city continues to flourish. You know, when, when I first came here, it was... Uh, you know, Dennis McWilliams had, had started Apollo Endosurgery mm-hmm. and uh, is now on the venture side and uh, a number of other innovators like Matt Winkler and Gary Sabins. And, and the, you know, there's a lot of spine companies and, you know, various different therapeutic areas under development, some interesting biotech companies. And I think it's going to be really interesting this next decade to just see um, continued growth and, and, you know, all sorts of new entrepreneurs moving here constantly. Um so yeah, it's gonna be an exciting next phase for the city, I think. Yeah. And maybe just rounding out the TBA experience because the dialysis as a segment, there have been a lot of failures over the years. And I wonder if you could talk about that, sort of the why, given the the, the clinical need, which is undeniable, and the problems with you know, that can occur during dialysis. Well, why haven't we seen more innovation and and uh, what do you see kind of as the future there you you know it talk about what happened with tba and and sort of how do you see the future in in dialysis in terms of the improvements going forward no it's a really good question because kidney failure and dialysis it, it's just one of those problems that's so massive and then you also could say the same thing about heart failure you could also say the same thing about rehabilitation medicine not everything gets attention in the same, uh, you know, the same magnitude. And a lot of that on the kidney failure side, I think has had to do with, um, it's such a large part of the Medicare budget, seven to eight plus percent by this point, I think of the Medicare budget, but the reimbursement mechanisms, the payment mechanisms certainly have been out of sync, uh, in previous years that really were not there to kind of drive that innovation. That's changed a lot in recent years. You look at outset medical and the work that Leslie Trigg is doing. And uh, I mean, there are, uh, and the, the the fistula first initiative, which was gosh, the early 2000s. Now there's more home dialysis reimbursement initiatives in place. There, There's just a lot of additional innovation happening now. It's whenever there's a clinical problem, you know, these people go through so much when they're on dialysis, whenever there's a clinical problem of that magnitude and you can improve it uh, just even just a little bit, uh, there have to be the appropriate sort of economic incentives and mechanisms in place to, to help those people do better and to take costs out of the system at the same time. And I think kidney failure is just going to continue to uh, be ripe for additional innovation. You know, we, we focused on dialysis access and the converting open surgery to minimally invasive. And, you know, you talk to patients, you know, one of the most compelling things for us is, you know, we would start having successful procedures with the minimally invasive approach. And we even would go to FDA with our patients and show them their arms and say, you know, okay, let's hear directly from the patient's perspective. What has your experience been like? And they would walk the FDA reviewers through what a, you know, what a week in their life was like going to the dialysis clinic, then getting multiple surgeries. And then they showed their arm with no scar and a minimally invasive procedures with fewer interventions and showed it right then and there in front of the FDA reviewers to them and said, look, this is 
the difference it makes to me as a patient. And I think those types of conversations are going to continue to happen in end-stage renal disease and kidney failure and chronic kidney disease uh, because it's just such a big problem and it's growing, unfortunately. So these patients need continued innovation. And, and I think CMS and other stakeholders are certainly working closely with industry on that, which is wonderful to see because it's very much needed. You know, new innovation is going to continue to be needed in that space. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the things, there are many impressive things about TVA. I mean, obviously, the, the what you did in the procedure itself was really revolutionary. Um, but almost equally impressive was getting a much more favorable reimbursement. I, ha I have to believe that's probably you know, the, the progress you made in reimbursement and showing an acquirer, you know, kind of what was going to happen here had to had to, had to have been a big factor behind uh, Becton Dickinson acquiring this, right? I think it was a big part. And I also think it was, you know, probably the most complicated and confusing part of the entire sort of uh, development uh, progress, you know, project, if you will. Uh, and company development and through the exit. It was, um, you know, I would say our internal team, you know, we had Michelle Machuca and, and Mike McCulley and our reimbursement teams and consultants. We had so many different inputs and the strategy that ultimate, ultimately sort of won there. And then Becton Dickinson just did an amazing job kind of taking it across the finish line after the acquisition was... Um, getting the patient advocacy groups involved, making sure they're involved in the conversation since uh, we're helping the patients in a very specific way. And that sometimes just needs to be articulated directly by the patients. Secondly, uh, making sure that clinical data was robust, meaningful, and we work closely with all stakeholders on that. Um, and then just sort of the overall kind of mechanistic strategy angle where I think you it's an area uh, where you get a lot of different opinions. Talk about sifting through various opinions. I mean, I've never had an area where I've got such wide ranging you know, strategic input from various consultants. Interesting. And so it, it, it really was an exercise in making sure we found the people we could trust the most. You know, we, we, we you know, Gail Dobert was, was a huge part of that for our success there uh, because she just really understands you know, how things work and what needs to be done and how to really focus on the clinical aspect of uh, and the clinical value of your project and how to position out with the payers. So she was, you know, very helpful for us in that process. Yeah, you can, you can never end up underestimate the role of that person and getting that person involved uh, early on. So, so, so coming off of, um, you know, really what was a fantastic success in that sale, what, what, talk about, uh, you know, how you thought about your next steps and, and what led you to alleviate. Yeah, it, you know, it was a, I was thinking about this before jumping on the, the, the podcast today. And, you know, when we had a successful exit, it was, it was a little unnerving, honestly. It was kind of like a very disarming experience. Um, it was a success and it, it made us super happy. And, you know, and, and, and Becton Dickinson, day one, uh, Steve Williamson, Dr. J.D. Meller, they just drove the therapy and training and education. I mean, it was amazing to watch. It was super uh, gratifying to see things kind of expand and grow successfully. 
uh, although from a distance after the after the acquisition. Um, and so it, it made me kind of think, gosh, what do I want to keep doing? I just love medical devices. I love this whole process. I want to try to roll some of these lessons I just learned. I was feeling a little beat up um, by, you know, a decade working on that or eight, eight or eight to 10 years on that. And it really became clear to me. It was about, okay, it has to be big and clinically meaningful. It has to be something I can wrap my mind around, you know, coming from kind of a biomechanics and cardiovascular focused background. You know, I want it to be impactful, but it has to be achievable too. It can't be too much of a moonshot. Just wanted to try to identify something that I could really, you know, wrap my arms around and, and, and uh, you know, work with great people again, something, you know, gratifying and, and bigger, go bigger kind of thing. Um, and, you know, heart failure uh, came up to the, came up to the top of the list here when I met a, a young uh, cardiovascular surgeon, Jacob Kriegel who had spun um, a, a small company, Alleviant, out of the TMC Biodesign Program. Uh, and he had taken some time off from training to, to get this company started with, with uh, his colleagues there in Houston. And you know, he started talking to me about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, one of the largest unmet cardiovascular needs. It disproportionately affects women. Uh, and it is pressure mediated. So it is a pressure driven disease where when left atrial pressure increases, fluid backs up into the lungs and patients have a hard time breathing. And these patients have very few options today. And it's a massive patient population. You're looking at about 26 million patients um, in the developed world. About half of those are called diastolic or preserved ejection fraction heart failure. And the other half are reduced ejection fraction um, uh, heart failure patients. And so um, the idea for Alleviant was to create a pressure relieving shunt, a channel from the left atrium to the right atrium to drop pressure and relieve that pressure and help them uh, feel better under light exercise. You know, somebody walks to the mailbox, has some congestion from their heart failure. If you have a pressure relief channel, you can drop that pressure and help them feel better. There were a number of companies working in the space using metallic implants and hardware to uh, drive that pressure drop. And the whole concept behind Alleviant was do this without hardware and without an implant. So what I really liked about the opportunity was uh, it was kind of a structural heart, heart failure crossover opportunity with a very clear mechanism of action. There was also history in the surgical literature and in the interventional literature around doing balloon septostomies, uh, creating a shunt in babies for other uh, you know, pediatric applications. And there were also precedents in the, uh, with, with a disease process called Lutenbacher syndrome, where patients that have uh, a native atrial septal defect had pressure relieving, um, uh, the mechanism of relieving the pressure would reduce their symptomology. Um, when they had mitral stenosis. And when you tried to close these ASDs down, you'd kind of increase their you know, heart failure events. And so there were two examples in uh, medicine that pointed to in patients, you can make a shunt from the left to the right atrium, drop pressure, and maybe do some benefits. So I really liked the space quite a bit. I liked the approach quite a bit. And it felt like something we could build a team around and go execute on. Yeah. And 
how much pause did it give you? I mean, one thing I've noticed just in all our investing, I mean, it's just awe-inspiring how elegant the human body is in the anatomy. And, you know, here you're, you know, you're disrupting that anatomy, you're creating a hole in the heart. And so how much pause did that give you going into this? And, and I, I suppose it must have been comforting to have these, you know, predecessor procedures, but but how how much did you think about that? Like, what could go wrong here? You're actually creating a hole in the heart. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And and so the history and the literature um, for doing septostomies, and then these other companies working with implantable shunts and their safety data showing freedom from stroke, showing in heart failure patients that you can do this safely was a big part of it. We didn't have a ton of information until just a few months ago, which. Uh, has been highly informative. You know, the first randomized sham control trial in atrial shunting was done by Corvia. They read out a neutral trial, uh, but then they had this highly responsive subgroup of patients, about half their patients responded well to interatrial shunting. And from a safety perspective across the board, very strong safety in terms of uh, freedom from any kind of stroke, per your question, Jeff, and uh, freedom from other right-sided dysfunctions or any other potential problems that we all were on the lookout for uh, and FDA, you know, had been engaged directly on as well. And so, you know, it was a few years ago when we kind of got Alleviant spun out and and funded and started working in stealth R&D mode. Um, We knew that we were a fast follower play. We knew that someone was going to hand us a big bolus of data from a, a large randomized sham control trial before We were ready to run a trial like that. And so kind of from a business timing standpoint, when I drew it out on a timeline, I said, I really like this opportunity because in all circumstances, if we design the best device in the space, if I look on a timeline here and this year in 2022, I'm going to have a lot of information to go build the best product and the, you know, the best therapy um, in, in the entire market. And so and that's kind of where we are today is we did have that big readout. It was highly informative. And now we fold that into our own clinical trial design. So the, the business timeline aspect of it, there were positives, certainly by being a fast follower and allowing us to kind of, you know, just stay in stealth mode and work on the product itself and make sure we could create a shunt in the human heart effectively. Um, and now from a timing, it all is lining up, uh, I think, very uh, favorably for the company. Yeah, I mean, it raises such an interesting question about, you know, whether, you know, the value of being first into a market and sort of taking all the arrows that can arise from that versus, you know, being second or third uh, to a a market and and really learning from that, the early entrance. And, um, And it sounds like you guys have really been able to to take advantage of not being first to market. There's certainly an element of that. And, it, and we're, we're, you know, the, there's so many smart people uh, from the physiology, from the heart failure clinician side, from the interventional cardiology side that have been working on this problem uh, the, the past decade or so uh, and have modeled the, uh, the hemodynamics within the heart who have carefully and meticulously crafted large clinical trials. Those trials have read out. And now it's sort of like, they hand us the data set and we have to carefully dissect it, 
analyze it, and then make sure we're interpreting it the right way with all of our advisors. You know, this from a company sort of operations perspective, I have never worked on something with the key opinion leader engagement that we have right now from just some of the top heart failure uh, researchers, clinical researchers, and some of the top structural heart interventionalists. It's just been a really, you know, partially stressful and then uh, very productive past few months because we're trying to make sense of other people's data. We don't have visibility on all of it, but we see the, the the headlines and we see the key takeaways and it all physiologically makes sense to us. I think anytime you have one of these uh, mechanisms of action and it's hard to wrap your mind around, that's where I get concerned. This one is very clear, pressure mediated. We drop pressure. We know that helps people feel better in heart failure from other clinical trials. Now make sure you have the right device to do that. So the way our device works at Alleviant, it's uh, it's no no implant, but it's done the same way any one of these left-sided heart procedures are done. So it's very simple. They do a puncture in the upper uh, thigh. They go up through the femoral vein and pass a guide wire across the septum, just like any other structural heart procedure on the left side. You then pass our device up. Uh, there's one moving part, you turn the knob in one direction, then the other and press a button and a half second pulse of energy is delivered and it creates a, a very clean uh, shunt while holding onto the tissue securely from a safety perspective. And we now know, and then you're, then you're done with the procedure. Um, and we now know that that shunt stays patent out through a year from all of the clinical work that the team uh, conducted during the pandemic in multiple countries around the world to try to move this therapy forward. So we're sitting here with a clinical data set, a simple procedure, a locked design, and a large RCT that's read out informing us which patients to treat. Now we just go run that trial. Yeah, what a huge, you know, what a huge advantage to have all that prior experience uh, behind you. Um, and you must have, I mean, the fact that it stays patent, I mean, obviously you must have had confidence that that was going to be the case, but that probably is a natural question for anybody thinking about this is, uh, or even the, the uh, companies that went before you who have an implant is, you know, we need an implant because it won't stay patent. So th th that must have been really, uh, um, you know, a critical milestone for you guys to see that these things, in fact, do stay open. Absolutely. And when you think about it from the patient's perspective, and this is, this is the, you know, you think about such a large unmet need and you have these patients that there's a drug or two that may be slightly helpful. There are these new categories of drugs. Everyone's heard about SGLT2 inhibitors, and they can incrementally improve quality of life a little bit in these patients. But if you can give them a minimally invasive approach you don't leave any hardware behind. It drops pressure and helps them feel better, walk further. Um, and, and we need to show that in our, our own randomized controlled trials. But all of our single arm studies show very favorable uh, progression of uh, clinical outcomes. You know, I think it's the sort of procedure that, that can help a lot of people. I mean, these patients are kind of hiding in plain sight. A HEFPEF patient they get congested, but their, their heart valves are normal. So they, you know, they don't need a TAVR. They don't need a mitroclip. They don't have any dysfunction of the heart valves, but their heart's having a hard time relaxing. It's not filling properly. Pressures are elevating. And if you can just give them some relief 
without it being an invasive procedure, we think we can help a lot of people. Maybe just talking about Corvia and, and following Corvia, and, and there was so much buildup, I think, to the, the data finally being released and, and the fact that it was a neutral trial. Well, to talk about what your reaction to that was and you know how you handled that and and not only you but your your team i mean was uh what was the impact of kind of the the first hours after that and and then how you processed it well i'll tell you that uh, you're hitting the nail on the head with the team aspect because this if i were to if i were to think about sort of the most powerful thing that we had from that data readout to where we are right now, it's the team around the table, the internal team, and also in the boardroom, our uh, collective thinking and, and interpretation of that information and everybody keeping a cool head and keeping a thoughtful process to try to synthesize it down. It'd be easy to kind of jump one way or the other and say, oh, that therapy doesn't work or great, we're just gonna make, change this one thing and then just go do that trial and everything's gonna be great. And I'd say our team did a really good job of staying disciplined and slow and thoughtful around just analyzing what the data actually meant, leveraging that to then design the strongest study that has ever been conducted in the space. But it really comes down to making sure the right people are around the table. We expanded our clinician advisor group during that period of time, and we just have some wonderful um, you know, clinician involvement constantly along the way there where, you know, our principal investigator, Jim Udelson, um, was a, a, you know, a wise, uh, constant sounding board uh, over the, the long course of time here as we've been designing this trial. And I just think it, it's, it's all about our, you know, our steering committee, just rock solid when it comes to heart failure expertise. And then our internal clinical uh, team, just very thoughtful, and, um, you know, dedicated to just thinking through the problem carefully. You know, we need, it's, it's like we don't want to take forever and just kind of hang out and pontificate too much. It's synthesized carefully. But then, like I said earlier, once you get that bullseye, you paint it and you rock and roll. You got to go for it. And that's sort of where we are right now. We've done all the synthesis. It's time to go do the trial. Yeah, and it, you know, you you touch on just the value of the of the team, and you, you know, I, I think about you know, it's so important picking the right partners in our in our business, right? From the from who's on your team to the investors on your board, because yeah, things can go wrong, and I, I think about some of the things in you know where we've had to learn a lot whether it was you know hypertension with the renal denervation and you know Medtronic's really followed through on that and learned from the original trials CVRX a company I was involved with had a you know a hiccup during their trial and were able to really figure out the group that worked best and and you know the investors really followed uh, that through and it you know it sounds like here everybody was able to take a very collaborative approach and and um, and making sure you have good investors around the table that can, uh, you know, that can yeah keep keep a steady hand along with you must be must be important. Absolutely, and, you know, and, and you're you're familiar with uh, you know how impactful that can be for the really just the psychology of the management team too. It's just um, it's tough for everybody, and and the board's role in that. It, it really can be a, a big positive or it can be a negative. 
And um, yeah, we're fortunate. I've just, you know, just having great investors around the table to, to partner with and bounce stuff off of those that have seen, um, you know, a lot of these things play out and, you know, in, in, in your day job, you get to see so many different companies and management teams. Sometimes on the operating side, we, you know, we may be a little myopic when we're, we're focused on, on our thing and our thing, <laughs> our thing only. And uh, there's nothing better than, you know, hearing from a, a great investment partner about an example of something they've seen at another company recently. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, wow, interesting. Okay. Let's, you know, it's not, we're not, you know, there's certainly uh, reoccurring patterns here in, in med tech for sure. And different flavors and every company is a little bit different, but, but that, that history and experience is uh, there's nothing, no, nothing more important in the boardroom. Yeah, and you've, you've had also the benefit of working with lots of types of uh, venture capitalists, or financial or financially oriented venture capitalists, but also the corporate uh, venture capitalists. I wonder if you could comment on 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 that. What what is it? You know, what are the differences between the two? How do you see the, you know, the the value add between the two? I think it can be incredibly powerful when you blend. Um, you know, sort of the traditional venture uh, partner, uh, you know, in the boardroom uh, that's invested in a lot of different companies and has, has seen a lot of things play out over the course of time with uh, strategic investors who, you know, from a, an operating perspective and, and, you know, each one of the strategics kind of has a, a different flavor and we've integrated that sort of uh, participation in these various companies in multiple ways over the years. But, I think it can be incredibly powerful uh, to have both involved, especially at the right time. Um, you know, just from an operator's perspective, sometimes what you get from the strategic investors is just just real time, you know, uh, field based, market based, kind of uh, company based intel that can that can help move the needle. You know. Back at TVA, we would, you know, there was one example I remember. One of our strategics, they, they were just fantastic. And um, on the reimbursement front, we got to get access to their entire team and talk to some of the, the, the people that were working with them um, in Washington, D.C. on some other initiatives in the space and get their perspectives. And so we just got access to these, you know, high power kind of, uh, you know, real time operating big company um advisors, if you will, kind of through the strategic investor. And, you know, today we have a very similar kind of structure where from an operating perspective, we're able to tap into, you know, kind of global med tech strategic investors to, uh, you know, help with various operating components of the business, even though we're a separate company, uh, you know, just having that advice around the table as an additional investor, uh, I think can, can really be helpful to a company. Yeah, I think you're right, and and um, and again, like anything else, picking the right people, uh, the right uh, venture firms uh, on the corporate side, and and also knowing when to um, uh, bring them into the process are kind of critical uh, critical things to understand. Adam, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing uh, the experiences um, across Alleviant and TBA, and really enjoyed the. Uh, enjoyed the chance to, to catch up with you. Jeff, uh, always great to catch up with you. You know, really enjoyed this time and uh, 
Um, looking forward to staying in, in, in touch and uh, good luck with the podcast. Really great stuff. I love hearing from, from uh, uh, some of the, the other guests you've had on the show. It's uh, it, you know, I think it's a great resource for all of us in the med tech business. And, and I always learn something when I, when I listen to uh, uh, some of your other guests in particular. So, so thanks so much for letting me be a small part of it. Well, we enjoyed it. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Bye.